Hello and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Kennedy. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement locally and internationally. This week, I spoke with the amazing Kelly Semino. She is a wife, mother, lawyer, and disability advocate. She shares some great insights on what it is like to be a mama in a wheelchair. And now let's listen in on that conversation with Kelly Semino. Kelly Semino, welcome to Trips and Global on Wheels. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So Kelly Semino is a civil litigations attorney and a disability advocate living in D.C. currently. She just completed a uh, deposition to join us this morning. I read that the reason you're in a wheelchair is because you were in a car accident when you were 16, which resulted in a spinal cord injury. What kind of changes have you had to adapt? Because you were 16, so much later than life than a lot of people with disabilities. Yeah, when I was 16 years old, I was a passenger in uh, the back middle seat of an older vehicle that only had a lap belt. So when the car was involved in a wreck, it caused me to break my back and stretch my spinal cord and become a paraplegic, meaning that I have no movement or sensation in my lower limbs, but I do have lower extremities um, I can move. You know, high school is a super hard time for kids anyways, uh, for maybe even more so for females. You know, those ideas of body image and who you are really are coming out at that time in your life. And so when you throw in a wheelchair and, and changes to your body, you know, atrophy of your muscles, loss of sensation, of uh, control of certain bodily functions, you know, it, it can really turn your world upside down. Luckily for me, I had a great support system, I had a great family, and I was able to get in a great rehabilitation program that took into account as an adolescent what I needed, so they were able to continue to provide me schooling, so I knew I would be able to graduate high school with my class and those types of things. The main thing for me was staying busy. I never wanted to stop, and perhaps that's what I, I've done for, I guess, for the last 17 years now. So I have been in a chair now for 17 years. Becoming injured at a young age, I think in a lot of ways, you know, while it was devastating on so many levels, it also, it was before I had chosen my profession, before I had had children, before I would met my spouse, before I traveled the world. I've just learned, you know, as I've entered these various stages of my life, how to do it from a chair. And so in that way, I didn't know any other way of doing things. Staying busy really helped you adapt over time, you felt like? Yes. You know, the idle time was a time where I could sit and think about things, perhaps think about the things I couldn't do. Whereas when I am busy, I'm seeing all that I can do. And really, I can do so many things. So is staying fit really important for you now that you have this disability? Is it more important than before? It is very important to me for various reasons. One, because 
you know, the reality is, is that I'm more susceptible to skin breakdown. I'm more susceptible to degeneration of my shoulders and other parts of my body. And the more I'm taking care of my body, the longer I know I will be able to live an active, fulfilling life in my wheelchair. So, you know, I've been in a wheelchair 17 years now. I hope I get another 17 years and another 17 years after that. And so staying fit is incredibly important because one, it you know helps my, my body, but also my mind because uh, staying fit allows me to push, to be independent, to get where I want to go, to be able to transfer and to do the things that are important to me. You know, I gave birth to my son as a paraplegic two years ago. And so even during pregnancy, and maybe even more so during pregnancy, I had that fear. You know, I, I knew I was naturally going to be gaining weight, and then I would naturally want to have that weight off after the baby. I wanted to be careful with my skin and not have more weight-causing pressure sores or things like that that thankfully I've not had to deal with. And so even through pregnancy, I was making a way to keep up a, a routine I will say as a mom of two that works, finding time to work out like many moms is, is a challenge. I'm not going to lie, but I've found even if I can get in two times a week, get into a yoga class or go out for a push with my kids, those are the things that are keeping and maintaining it during this crazy part of my life. And hopefully the ebbs and flows, I can, I can find a way to do things, other things I like, like I really enjoy swimming and finding that time is precious. But when I get to, I really enjoy it. I feel like I've met very few mothers that are in wheelchairs. So it's good to be able to see people that look like me leading those ordinary lives. So how is parenting in a wheelchair different from parenting as an able-bodied person, you think? Well, I guess that perspective for me is I don't know. I've only parented from a chair, but to the extent of what my role is as a mom compared to my mom friends, it's really no different. My kids have adapted differently. We do things differently. You know, when I have to change my son's diaper, I pick him up, I plop him on my lap, and I change his diaper from my lap. I did the same with my daughter, who will be five years old tomorrow. We actually adopted my daughter, which is a whole other discussion on adopting with a disability. But my kids know that when we go places and we walk around, that they need to hold on to mommy's wheelchair because I can't hold their hand. And I want to make sure that we're all safe when we cross the street or things that every other mom or parent wants to make sure when they're going places. I just have to do things a little different. And kids are so adaptable. It's really natural for all of us. It's nothing else that we've known. And at the same time, my, my kids see me everywhere that they see their friends' moms. I'm at dance class. I'm at soccer practice. I'm at birthday parties. You know, I'm traveling with them. I actually do a lot of travel. My husband's in school at night getting his master's, and he works during the day. And so me and my kids travel a lot together. I fly with them by myself. It always makes TSA security when I roll up and have one kid hanging onto my wheelchair and one I'm wearing in a sling. And they're like, uh, who are you traveling with? And I'm like, well, you see these two little people right here? That's, that's who I'm traveling with. <laughs> and they just don't know what to do with me almost. But we've traveled a lot and we've learned together as we've gone. And so parenting from a, a chair like has 
you know, certainly challenges. Like I know that if my kid starts running away and up a flight of steps, I don't have the ability to chase right after them. So it's kind of been that learning for all of us saying, mommy can't go up there. This is off boundaries. You cannot do this. And, you know, it's just those types of things of, of figuring out, you know, as it, babies when they were the infants wearing the babies that's kind of like a lot of people do it now but for me it was more necessity because I couldn't push a stroller so just wearing my kids and they adapted really well that's all they knew was just to climb on to mommy and she would wrap them in the sling and go and so it's more of us kind of going through these processes these stages of our lives together and at the same time, being out in the community where my kids are seeing me alongside of their friends' parents and not really seeing any difference in what we're doing and what her friends are doing. Yeah, your husband seems very supportive. And also, I think you found a true partnership based on just the little bit that you've described. You going out with your two kids on your own, I feel like. Some some people may be nervous about that, but you guys seem to really trust each other and understand each other. You know, they say you find the person that you need. And so sometimes my husband, Bradley, will be like, oh, I forgot that you might have needed help with this. Because I guess there's just so many things in our relationship that I've kind of set to be independent in so many ways that I'm like, okay, okay, maybe I need you to, to do something. But he, he allows me to do things in the way I want to do them to feel comfortable. He will lend his assistance when I ask, but he's not going to intrude. And most importantly, he's always been confident of my abilities and has not really focused on the fact that I'm in a wheelchair because he lives with me and he sees, like, let's be honest, I run everything in our household. <laughs> I keep it all going as, as many wives and women do. And so he's, he's just allowed me to focus on all I can do and has never doubted me in the process. Whether I come up with a crazy idea where I'm like, I'm taking the kids on a 3,000 mile road trip and, you know, he just rolls his eyes, but he knows that I can do it and I'll be fine. And he, he supported me in that way. And, and in my professional, you know, I've, I've had a demanding job and that requires him to often, you know, have to step in help with the kids when I have things that I have going on that will keep me at work late. And, you know, if I have a trial coming up or whatever, I mean, it's just the nature. And so he's also allowed me to pursue my dreams professionally and allowed me to do what I want to do and supported me in that, whether it's watching kids or just saying, yeah, you can do this. For people that aren't as in tune and confident with interacting with people in wheelchairs, what should other spouses keep in mind about parenting with a spouse in a wheelchair? The important part is if you have a spouse or if you're marrying someone or you come in a situation where your spouse has become disabled in, in some way, you know, giving them their confidence to navigate and explore things on their own. That means there could be failures along the way. There could be that trial and error process. But giving that space for that person to figure it out, whether their goal is to be able to transfer into their wheelchair from the floor. And it's a struggle. And it's hard for you to see someone you love struggle. But giving them that space to struggle and to be there when they need it, but to allow them to communicate their needs and allow them to explore where they are and what they want to do and what their goals are 
Now, a situation I encounter more often is people who know of me but don't really know me that well and they'll meet me and they're not really sure, well, should I open the door? What should I do? Should I move this chair all the way at the table? And I say, yes, I'm from the South. I like common courtesies, but when it comes to other things, I like to be able to communicate what my needs are. If we're at a dinner party or a cocktail party and there's a table of food, I, I'm confident to say like, hey, will you go grab me a plate? Or I, I, I'll, maybe one day I'll just want to do it on my own and put the plate in my lap. Um, so the main thing is, is just interacting with people with disabilities and becoming more comfortable with it because there's not a lot of visibility of people with disabilities in the community. The people that I went into the conference room today for a deposition probably haven't seen too many or any lawyers roll in. That's an unusual situation for them, but by me being in the community and being out there, and my work being the same exact work as theirs, my goals during that deposition being the very same as what theirs were, the only difference being that I rolled in rather than walked in. It's just having people in the community and interacting with those people so it becomes more of a mainstream rather than an uncomfortable situation where you're not sure how to approach someone or navigate. And I think asking is always the way to go. You never want to make assumptions. You know, even for me, if I'm with a person I've met who may be blind, like I want to say, can I read you off the menu? You know, just the respect that I would want in my own way to return that. And they may have already had someone read it before they came, showed up at the restaurant and may not need it or they may. But just having that level of comfort where you're willing to approach something that you're not familiar with and having a conversation around it, I think is the most important thing. So on the flip side of that question, what should wheelchair users keep in mind about parenting with an able-bodied person? I guess for me, it was okay to accept my limitations and know that I had a partner for a reason. For example, when we go out, you know, I have two younger kids, so we have a double stroller, and it's really good to have, but I simply can't use it. So when it's just me and the kids, I just don't use it, and I don't think about it. When we go out as a family, we'll bring it, and there's times where I'm like, oh, you know, I really wish I could be the one pushing it, and then I have to stop and be like, but you have a partner, and you have someone that can, so why worry about that? Let them push the stroller and enjoy the other aspects of the day or the activities. You know, I'd like to think of myself as someone who can just do it all. But being able to be realistic enough to say, like, there may be limitations, and that's okay. Because there are so many ways that a person can parent in a different way physically or maybe without a physical component to it. I've seen some of my friends uh, quadriplegics and they're parenting as mothers and fathers and doing a wonderful job. And that may not mean that the diaper's getting changed by them, but that doesn't take away what they bring to that child. And so I think the main thing is bringing whatever you can bring to the children, loving them, supporting them, and then also giving yourself a break to say, like, I might not be able to conquer everything physically with my kids. I'm not going to go climb a mountain with them, but I am going to be present. I am going to be there, and I'm going to love them most of all. People in the disability community, we're really hard on ourselves. 
you know, you don't ever want to have to look at something as a limitation or something you can't do, but being okay with knowing that there may be a couple of things that will come up each and every day that are going to be a struggle or that you simply cannot do with your kids, but there's so many things you can do and, and really keeping the focus on just enjoying being with your kids. I mean, some days are like super hard, but as a parent in a wheelchair, it's extra, extra hard because we have to put a lot more effort into everything, just like getting dressed or everything we do with our personal needs. It translates to that as taking care of kids too, but with the right adaptable equipment, it can make things so much easier, whether it's an adaptive crib or, you know, wearing slings or different things that can really um, make it easier. Use those things and make your life easier. Also, getting into a community and networking with other parents with disabilities is also helpful because you're going to learn so much from them because we are a very, very small group. You know, especially when I was going through my pregnancy, I was like, what am I going to face? What is this going to look like? What is giving birth as a paralyzed person going to be like? And if you look on the internet, you're not going to find anything because it's not there. It's not talked about. It's not researched. And you're just not going to find it. So it's really digging in and finding those people to talk to and give you those confidence. Like, you can do this. And as it turned out, I could do it. And it turned out great. And I have a two-year-old son now. What communities have you tapped into that you felt like have really helped? Are these more personal friendships or groups that you've discovered? It's been more finding on Facebook. There's several specifically for moms in wheelchairs. Perhaps there's one for dads, and I just just don't know since I'm not a dad. I also was like shamelessly finding not that I knew, but finding people's names and getting their email addresses and saying like, hey, I've been given your name because you have a spinal cord injury or whatever and uh, have given birth recently. And I have some questions. Would you mind answering some of these? And people are typically willing to share their experiences and answer questions. You know, I certainly am now because, you know, I know the lack of information out there. I know the lack of visibility of disability and pregnancy, of parenting with a disability. And so the more I can build on my network of people and expand that, um, it's, just, it's just giving me more ideas and giving me more confidence. What were some of your top concerns? My top concern at the moment with the age of my kids, my son just turned two, my daughters will be five tomorrow, is them running away. And how do you control children at an age to be safe, at an age where they're just not necessarily wanting to be controlled or listen? Honestly, there were times with my daughter that I had to put her, like, use the backpack leash. And I hated that. Like, I just feel like that is, like, the worst thing ever. But I was like, this is a safety thing. And I have to push aside, like, all the looks I know I'm going to get when I go through the airport with my daughter and she's wearing a backpack leash. But it's a safety thing. This is the best way I can do it because I can't hold her hand while I'm trying to push. And with my son, his personality is a little different. He, he's more of a mama's boy, but he will start running away. And that's one of my concerns right now is at the age my kids are at. I'm sure, you know, in the next stage of life, there'll be a new concern. I know with my wheelchair, I have a Tylite Arrow Z. The front caster wheels are really small. 
so I often fall off of my chair. Does that happen to you? And if so, how does that affect the way that you interact with your kids? I do have small front casters. I have a tie light as well. I think it's a ZR something. I'm forgetting the exact, but it, it has very small front wheels. A lot of times what I've been using when I'm out on terrain, and it has just been amazing. Like I've gone so many years without this and I just remember, you know, traveling in Europe, all those wonderful cities with cobblestone everywhere that I was just face planning a lot. But for now, I've gotten a free wheel, which is a wheel that hooks onto the front foot plate. It's a wheel that goes out in front of you and it just slightly picks up your front caster so that you can navigate the terrain easier. So if I'm like going out on a playground with the kids or even over like grassy areas, there might be like holes or different things. I've just been putting that on and it has been really, really great. You know, living in an urban area, I'm on sidewalks all the time. So I think my, my issue is I am super bad at directions and I think it's because I'm constantly looking at the ground and I never look up to see what's around me to like get an awareness of buildings or those kind of things. And so when I'm normally just going out and about, I kind of keep my eyes to the ground so I can watch just to pop up my front wheels if I need to. I mean, that's not to say I don't have the occasional, you know, fall actually. The other day I was in the metro and I was trying to put my newspaper in my backpack and I actually flipped backwards. I cannot tell you the last time I did that. Um, it was that it was a horrible day to do it too because I had decided to wear a dress that day. And, oh, no. <laughs> and so I was like on the ground. I knew I could get back up into my wheelchair, but of course it worried other people around. And so, you know, it's it's just having that humility to be like okay this is awkward and, and not a great situation for everyone but you know I asked a lady if she could just kind of help keep my dress down as I transferred back up and that's what we did I guess we have to laugh at ourselves at some point because we we're gonna all face those situations where you're just like I cannot believe this just happened and also you were alluding to earlier Sometimes it's, it is very awkward and it could be even more alarming for passerby than for yourself because you've experienced it before. Yeah, because people don't know me and don't know like whether I can transfer in my chair, how they need to help me. But that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, having a conversation, asking those questions like, how can I help you? Can I help you? And in this case, a lady came up and like, hey, can you just hold my dress, like kind of keep it down while I transfer back up into my chair? And, you know, she was happy to do that for me. And that helped a lot. So what should wheelchair user wannabe parents keep in mind while giving birth to a child? I think the main point is, if that is a goal that you have, you can do it. Talk to people who've been through it. And I'm talking, obviously, from the perspective of a woman who may be the one giving birth. But I can also talk from the perspective of adopting as well. Not giving birth, but becoming an parent. My daughter was adopted. It was our first. So the way I became a parent was not through giving birth. But the main thing is you can do it. Whatever way that is, whether that's using a surrogate, whether that's giving birth yourself, whether that's supporting your spouse who will be giving birth, or whether that's adopting, you know, 
know, families come together in so many different ways, whether that's you having a partner, whether that's you wanting to do it as a single parent, you can do it. Getting a doctor who believes in you and that supports you is super important because it is possible to give birth in the way that you want to give birth. Having a doctor that believes in that idea and what you want your birth to look like, I think is very important. And then finding a support system around you because you're going to face days of uncertainty where you're like, I don't know, can I really do this? For me, like I, I already knew what parenting looked like when I gave birth because I was already a parent. I just had not given birth. So my fear with my son was like, how is this all going to work out, me giving birth? And really the body is an amazing thing. It, it just kind of prepares itself. I actually didn't have to have an epidural some higher level injuries who don't have the feeling may get an epidural just to help with spasms or uh, autonomic dysreflexia and in my case like I just I don't have spasms I don't get AD autonomic dysreflexia and so I didn't have to and that was one thing I wanted so I wanted a doctor who was willing to support what my birth plan was. So you've alluded to this a couple of times now. You adopted your first child, your daughter. So why did you choose adoption rather than give birth? Well, it really didn't have anything to do with being in a wheelchair or my disability. It was just the way my husband and I saw ourselves starting a family. We wanted to adopt and we knew we wanted to adopt our first child because we wanted my daughter to know that she was exactly the way we wanted our family to start. You know, she was just as planned and chosen just as if I had birthed her. And, and so that's what we did. Now there is even less information than parenting with a disability or giving birth as a person with a disability on adopting with a disability. And certainly, you know, you, you hear stories all the time about custody cases, the parent with a disability is far more likely to have their child removed from them. So what does that mean when you have a birth mom selecting you knowing you have a disability? And I can't say it's easy. In fact, we have looked at international adoption. We thought that was the way our, our family was supposed to start. And, and unfortunately, it was not given the different restrictions that various countries have on who can adopt. Um, a lot of countries are like, no, we, we will not allow an individual with a disability to adopt a child from our country. Which I didn't understand because I'm like, hey, look, I can give a great life to this kid. I've got a house. I've got a great job. We have a community. This would be a wonderful family. And none of that mattered. All they saw was, well, this lady's in a wheelchair. And so after we got off, like, well, that's not the way it's going to be. Just a sequence of events just opened the door to where there was a, a birth mom and we had sent her information about us as they typically will request we didn't use an agency or anything like that we did an independent adoption because i just didn't want too many people involved who didn't know me that would only see my wheelchair but everyone has their own way of going about adoption that was just ours we just did it independently meaning i used we used an adoption attorney and went that way but she knew that i was in a wheelchair but she also saw that we had a lot of love to give and had the support to build a great family and community and life for this child. And we still keep in touch with her. And it, you know, it's, it's honestly been a very, very positive experience that I hope I can share with more people to say like, look, you know, 
if giving birth isn't in your cards, that doesn't mean being a parent isn't. There's other ways to go about it. It can be just as beautiful. I've talked to other individuals in wheelchairs who've adopted, and they said the social service agencies are a nightmare, and there's all sorts of obstacle courses that you have to yeah. go through. It is true. So that's why, honestly, we got an independent agency to come do our home study. We went through an independent attorney. Like I mentioned, I just didn't want too many people with their hands on my process of adopting that didn't know me and would only see a wheelchair and never had a parent wanting to adopt in a wheelchair. To just see that and then you just kind of say, well, but there's all these other families over here with able-bodied parents. So we'll just kind of shuffle everyone in their direction. So I was pretty deliberate, maybe because I was very cynical about it all. Like, I don't want too many eyes on this of people who don't know me. So we worked with a very small group, like a home study agency. That That's all they did. They were very small. We kind of interviewed them ahead of time to say, like, you're going to be evaluating us, but I don't want it to be because I'm in a wheelchair. I want it to be because you think I'm going to be a good mom. Do I have the financial ability to support a child? All the normal checklists. And so that's why I was very deliberate in who was going to be involved in this process so that I wasn't getting people who, you know, just didn't know anything about the capabilities of a person with a disability as a parent deciding whether I deserve to be involved. So that's very insightful to hear that process because you're right, even though I have talked to parents who've adopted, it's very few and far between. So next we'll transition on to advocacies. In one of your articles, you mentioned that at one of your first trials, a judge requested that everyone stand out of respect. And of course, you're in a wheelchair and unable to do so. So what's been the hardest part about working in a predominantly able-bodied, male-dominated career field? What do you wish could be changed? I'm a trial lawyer, and so the type of law I practice is predominantly male. So just being a female in itself, there's a lot that has to be overcome when you're putting on a trial in front of a jury and having 12 people, strangers that you don't know, listen to you and hopefully agree with what you're saying and, and going to go along with what you're asking them to do. Now, when you throw into that, being a person in a chair, that kind of just blows their mind because they don't really know what to think of it. The story you cited was my first trial where I was accompanying one of the partners and the judge walked out and, you know, he just thought I was sitting at the table. He had not seen me roll in or anything. And so when he, they said, all rise, and I was still sitting, he saw that as a sign of disrespect. Now, the other part of the problem was, once I, you know, I brought to his attention, you know, Your Honor, I'm not, no disrespect here, I'm just unable to stand. He got so uncomfortable by that whole situation that any time he needed to call the attorneys up to have a sidebar conversation, which means a conversation where the jury isn't able to hear, which typically means the lawyers will walk up to the bench where the judge is seated and we'll have an exchange. He'd say, no, 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 you're okay. Just stay at the table. The other lawyer, you know, the partner you're with can handle it, which is totally wrong, totally wrong. And I should have been included, but he was so uncomfortable by it all that he didn't know how to handle it. So his way of handling it was to exclude me. So what I took from that is, all right, I guess I have to be a little bit of an educator from now on. 
And so ahead of time, calling ahead, saying, hey, look, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be at the trial. I need a low table instead of the podium with a microphone. And I'm going to be in a chair. If the judge needs to talk to us, he or she will either need to step down from the bench and let's go to the side or call us back into the chambers where the judge's office is and we need to have a conversation there because I, I need to be a part of it. So as much as sometimes, you know, it's exhausting for people, as I'm sure everyone with a disability knows, to constantly have to be that person to teach me others. This is how you need to do it. This is what I need. But at this point, this is that is the only way, you know, rather than me facing a true like injustice, which is being totally excluded from things that I really needed to do to effectively represent my clients, I've just got to put in the front work as much as it annoys me so that I can have a smooth trial and let the focus not be on my wheelchair, but what I'm presenting and representing my clients. What about experiences outside the court? Let me tell, I guess, a positive side of what I do and why I bring something to the table. And so why we shouldn't always think of, well, the wheelchair equals negative. And to be honest, there are so many you know, prejudices and things that we have to overcome, especially in the professional world where it is a walking, able-bodied population. But you know, on the flip side, I represent a lot of people who have been catastrophically injured or killed. And so whether I'm talking to a family member or I'm talking to the individual who may have a brain injury or maybe in a wheelchair now or whatever the circumstance may be, I can relate on some level that truly no one else can. What they've been through, what the associated cost of that looked like, you know, I get it. I understand because I've been there. I am there. Um, and so, you know, what I try to do and why I enjoy what I do is that oftentimes, not always, but often my cases, or at least some of my cases, can involve individuals where, you know, I can be their lawyer, but I can also counsel them in a way that no other lawyer could. And for that reason, they have confidence in me and they know that, you know, I'm smart, I can represent them on their legal issues, but I also can say, I get it. Like, I get what your needs are. I understand what this process is looking like for you because, you know, I was there years ago. So in terms of advocacy and how family members or friends have advocated for you from 16 and on, how is that different from when you were an able-bodied person to when you were in a wheelchair? I had an interesting conversation with my mom the other day. There was has been a lot of talk lately about the epidural stimulation and people standing up. And she said, isn't that so great? And I'm like, you know, it is, but you're not going to like what I have to say. I don't see that as something for me. And we sat there and talked for another hour about it, how you know, I, I had a very fulfilling life in a chair and I want research to continue. I want there to be cures, but my reality is I've been in a chair for 17 years and I have a really great life in a chair. You know, what I need isn't to walk. What I need is accessibility. What I need is not to have to deal with a flight of stairs that I can't get in somewhere. So my issue is not being able to walk up those stairs. My issue is that there's not another source of accessibility so I can live my life in a chair. 
for my mom, she was totally thrown off because she thought what she needed to do was to support me moving in a direction where there was this chance. Maybe there would be a cure for me. So for family members, I think, you know, it is having those conversations. And, and this is me talking 17 years into my injury. My conversation with her would have looked very different one year in, two years in. Of course, I was a young teenager then. Now I'm in my 30s. I have two kids. and I'm in my profession. I, my life is, has gone on. I, my life rolls on every day. And so, you know, for family members, I think dealing with a person with a disability it can be hard because you, you want to take away those injustices. You want to take away those struggles, those obstacles that are clearly being faced every day because they're seeing it. They're seeing the challenges. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that, you know, I'm not facing some kind of challenge. So I think for families, just supporting their family member where they're at. And at that time, it may be rehabilitation. It may be extensive rehabilitation. It may be, you know, gaining functioning. Or it may just be trying to be supportive of new, you know, advancements. Or it could just be helping make the world a little more accessible. Yeah, I could definitely relate to that. So for my last question, what policy changes would you like to see in the foreseeable future? Being in D.C. is great because we do have access to so many people who are doing so many different things to affect and change policies on the national level. And so since I've moved here, I've, I've really wanted to make a point of being present on Capitol Hill, being present in Senator and Representative's offices about things that are important to me. There are several things right now that I'm specifically working on. One is related to air travel accessibility. The Air Carrier Accessibility Act actually came out before the ADA, and it said a person with a disability has a right to be able to fly on an airplane. And so it was great because this was coming out before the ADA, which came out in 1990, you know, to, to give people that access to flights because airplanes are just as of right now, which is another thing for another day, but, you know, there's no ex accessibility on flights. So you're having to transfer into aisle chairs and, and go through that process. Well, what we've seen, you know, in the last 35 plus years that the Air Carrier Accessibility Act has been in place is there's a lot of problems, a lot. Every time I fly, there's something happening, and a lot of time it's related to training of the people having to help me with the transfers and the aisle chairs. It's especially affecting individuals with power chairs whose chairs are having to be stored underneath the plane in the bulk cargo that are getting damaged beyond repair oftentimes. And so there's an amendment to that act, the Air Carrier Accessibility Amendment Act, that's trying to go through that would require more training for those individuals assisting those with disabilities. You know, I've had someone push me into a wall before. I've been left on an airplane. And just this past weekend when I was flying, they put me in the aisle chair, pushed me up to the airplane, but then they only had one person and couldn't get me on. So they just left me there. In the meantime, first class and everyone else started boarding. And so everyone was like walking up to get on the plane. But here I was sitting in the middle of the doorway. So they're having to sidestep around me to get in. So training is one part of it. Right now, what can you do if you encounter an issue as a person with a disability? Well, you should report it to the airline. 
They have CRO officers, and you should always file a complaint after this happens. But who oversees things with the airline? And that's right now it's the Department of Transportation. And so you, you as an individual, can directly file a complaint with the DOT. But there is no private right of action, meaning I myself cannot bring a claim directly against the airline. I can file a complaint with the DOT saying, hey, I had this experience on this particular airline. This is what happened. And it was in violation of the you know, Air Carrier Accessibility Act and the regulations that say what steps should be taken and how I should be handled as a person with a disability. But I cannot file anything directly against the airline. That's called a private right of action. So the Accessibility Amendment Act would allow for a private right of action for an individual with the Department of Justice. And I think that's a good step. I don't think that's going to solve everything, but I think that's an appropriate step to allow people to have a private recourse when their chairs are completely just inoperable after a plane ride, when they're left on an airplane, when they're injured from improper transfer. So that's one thing. Um, the other part that I'm working on a lot is related to the ride share. I had a, an experience happen back in June where I called an Uber, as I do often, to take me home. I was by myself. It was late in the evening. I, my friend and I had gone to dinner, and I wanted to get home. And an empty minivan came up, and I went to get in the front passenger seat, as I always do. I didn't ask for any assistance with transfer. And then the guy looked up and saw an employee at the hotel I was at trying to take the um, wheelchair and put it in the trunk. And he just jumped out and said, no, no space, no wheelchair. And so what happened was he would not allow me in, take me on a ride and allow me in his car because of my wheelchair. Of course, he couldn't do this. Of course, you know, they cannot, quote, discriminate on the basis of a disability. But it is happening, and it is happening a lot. It's happening for people who have service animals where the dogs aren't allowed into a vehicle. And even another issue with a rideshare is just a lack of accessible vehicles on the roads. The number of cars that are involved with rideshare platforms has far surpassed the number of taxis on the road. Yet, at the same time, the accessibility is none, or very, very, very little. Even in a market like D.C., which technically does have wheelchair-accessible vehicles, waves, when you're calling them, they're just not there. Not, they're not showing up because they don't have enough on the road. And so I've been working a lot with grassroots organizations, and, and trying to talk with policymakers within these different companies that operate these rideshare platforms on having a conversation about what accessibility looks like for rideshare platforms. I mean, there's multiple lawsuits also addressing this issue, and that's what it's also going to take. Those are kind of my two, two areas that I'm focusing a lot of attention on right now. Wow, that's that's great. You're getting me all excited when I was listening to you about about these changes, thinking, wow, I want to I want to join her. So you're definitely a role model for me. Thank you so much for taking up a good chunk of your time, despite how busy you are. Thanks, Ming. I, I really enjoy it. And just let me know where I can look out for the podcast and, and listen to it myself. Thank you. 
I attended to my heart and she said, rest, child, be still. Remember to be gentle with your will. All that's pulling you to be or tugging on your sleeve is not what it seems. Does not matter in the least, except for the way it helps you breathe your life. Thanks for listening to another Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Special thank you to our guest, Kelly Semino, for coming out on our podcast and sharing with listeners how to be a fabulous mother and a kick-ass lawyer and disability advocate. Special thank you also to my cousin, Rachel Canada, for editing this episode of our podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at Trips and Global on Wheels. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a global community of healthy, worldly, and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates. That means we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send us an email at trapesandglobalonwheels at gmail.com. We want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please write us in the contact us section of our website or post them on our social media pages. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.